Good afternoon, uh, and today I want to do an introduction to the humane arts. Now, a few years ago, I did a series called The Humane Arts, in which I did reviews of uh, walking, letter writing, conversations, uh, salons and cafes, and the general background of those activities that have proven throughout history to contribute to the sort of flowering of the humanities wherever they've occurred in the various manifestations in history. Now, unfortunately, when I did that series, the introductory lecture, the introduction to that series, uh, was not recorded. There was a mechanical or digital error um, in trying to record that, and so that was lost. And so I thought now would be a good time uh, to revisit that. And so for the first time ever, if you weren't able to attend the live series, this is the introduction that was supposed to be appended to the beginning of the Humane Arts series. So the Humane Arts, an introduction. <clears throat> And, and what's, uh, what got me thinking about this series to begin with many years ago was the notion that all over the place here, how important the humanities are. Uh, now that tourism has been shut down all over the world, one of the things you realize in some place like Italy or Spain is a huge portion of their economy is driven by those artifacts of, uh, of literature and art and architecture and music and, and uh, civic spaces, the just beauty, intellectual power, and emotional uh, remnants of the historical productions of societies when they're at their height of their creative powers. And so, so the, 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 the ability of these creations to echo um, through millennia and to inspire people and to enrich our lives and to fill us with uh, joy and insight and wisdom and, and make us feel free and you know, just expand the capacity of the human to be human has been recognized and is recognized in every kind of way. And so for many, you know, for centuries, people have talked about how important this is, how vital a contribution it makes, how wonderful it is. We you know, recognize the great artists and thinkers and writers and musicians and poets. Um, <clears throat> But all that's well and good, but what are those elements that contribute to that? So the analogy I came up with is it's as if everybody recognized how important gardening or organic gardening or something is. And everybody says it's important and we need this food and so on, but no one writes books or, or makes arguments about, well, how do you do it? What is the actual steps and processes? And so while well, on one hand, I'll take it as a given, we can argue that, but as a given, generally speaking, there's a recognition of the importance and power and contributions of, of this world of, of human creativity and <clears throat> power, intellectual power, emotional power. But on the other hand, I think there's very little actual serious thought that's been given to what elements contribute to making those things possible. And so in the end, so this series was an attempt to visit those elements that I think historically have proven that you need these things to produce the kinds of fluorescence uh, that we see uh, throughout human history. So um, that's what I want to explore. What's interesting, however, is what you don't need. First to start with is here's some things, shockingly, that you don't need. One, you don't need peace. We tend to think of you know, art artistic flourishings, intellectual insight, all, as being the products of peaceful civilizations, enjoying sort of unthreatened existence and, you know, lots of uh, untroubled leisure time. Now, this is nothing could be further from the truth. Um, ancient Greece, from which, of course, so much springs in the Western tradition, was at war more or less for two out of three years during the, you know, sort of the classical period. Um, generally with Sparta, but not exclusively with Sparta. You know, so so you go, wow, the, this was, you know, there's just almost continuous warfare. If you look at the Renaissance, of course, good Lord, never was there small-scale lack of peace. So assassinations, poisonings, uh, you know, m minor turmoil within the city-states, right? So if you're inside of a Florence or a, a Venice or something, you're, you're, you've got trouble, and then, of course, between the city-states, it was a continuous state of tension, warfare, intrigue, uh, you know, just small-scale wars, large-scale wars, you know, alliances, assassinations. It just never stopped. And you can look, this is true all over the world. Um, sometimes peaceful societies are productive. Some of the great traditions, for instance, that come out of China came out of uh 
um, very, you know, sort of prosperous, peaceful times, but also they didn't. So Confucius um, was famously in one of the most troubled times, a very troubled period um, in the history of, of China. And in fact, they call it, you know, there are many flower schools at the time because the disruption in the social system got everybody thinking. And so it threw up all these different traditions and ideas and philosophical schools from which basically Confucianism um you know, one, you know, sort of eventually over time came to be the dominant, although also those other schools still had a major influence on the incorporation into the Confucianist tradition. But, you know, so a lot of that undergirding of Chinese history comes from periods of warfare and distress and civil war or external invasions. Um, of course, and you can look later with the Mongol invasion. I mean, so, you know, there's all of these different examples. So uh, you don't need peace, oddly. Uh, not, not that peace is bad. Not that peace means you can't be productive. It's just not necessary. Peace is not one of those things that um, you would think it would be good. It probably is good for many things, but not necessary to have sort of these great intellectual artistic flourishings. Um, the second thing that you really don't need is widespread wealth. Now, we tend to associate material prosperity with all good things. And so we think, oh, if we're materially prosperous, everything else will flow. On one hand, you do need a certain amount of free wealth for a certain number of people for the arts to flourish. That's, that's pretty clear. Um, if you don't have sort of uh, a reservoir of material resources, not just money, by the way, but just you know, material, for most of the history, money was not, uh, was either a part of, or maybe not even the most important part of wealth, land and, and, and property, uh, and the goods that come from that were often as important, if not more important. So, uh, but you don't need that to be generally widespread, which is sort of unfortunate but true uh, that 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 notion of wow if everybody has money you'd see a lot more artistic flourishing if everybody is materially prosperous you'll see a bunch of this well it turns out that's not true uh, it would be nice if it were true because different periods of history where societies have been relatively wealthier on average or it's been more generally dispersed have not necessarily been associated strongly with these incredible flourishings of the arts. And, and that's why sometimes people despair and say, oh, you know, look, we have all this money, but, you know, are we producing great art? I think we are producing great art, but certainly nothing on the order of how much more materially prosperous that we've become, right? So we've, we've engaged in this sort of century of, of uh, what I believe Kenneth Clark called uh, heroic materialism, right? Like materialism uber allis, that we will become so materi materially wealthy that all other goods, you know, artistic genius in this case, or intellectual insight will follow. And unfortunately, uh, that those not necessarily the case. You do need some excess wealth, but just generating wealth, having excess money does not, in fact, create these sorts of um, environments that are necessary. And in fact, sometimes they can absolutely work uh, opposed to this. So that's, you know, one of the problems that we'll talk about a little bit. Another thing that you don't need is freedom. So again, you know, we love this idea of, oh, set the people free and they'll do great things. I mean, good to set the people free, but that is not enough. You, you need some people a certain number of people who have a certain amount of freedom. That much is clear, but they don't need, it turns out, a huge amount of freedom. In fact, much of the artwork that survives sculpture and architecture from the classical world was done by either lowest class of freemen who had no status, but at least they were moderately free, uh, or slaves. Right. And so, you know, wow, these we think of, oh, those geniuses, they must have been. No, they weren't actually often that free, right? <laughs> it would like to be true, but it's not true. And so um, this uh, notion that setting people free will be strongly associated with, with the flourishing of the arts is, is, again, it's inaccurate. Now, you need a certain amount of freedom for a certain number of people. Now, this doesn't mean we shouldn't pursue freedom, of course, but it does mean that you, you don't want to make the... Uh, correlation, the false correlation, that somehow increasing the number of people who are free and the kind, it also varies the kind of freedoms that you have, 
uh, will produce an, an incredible fluorescence. And again, widespread education. You know, education is good. Let's educate as many people as possible. But how you're educated, what you're educated in, and the goal of your education uh, makes a big difference in the kind of production you're going to have. And are we shooting for the, for the education towards excellence and, 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 and the greatest possible human flourishing, or are we shooting for other goals? And I mean, this, again, is most clear in any society that is highly stratified where they have varying levels of education. And, you know, again, you can go to the ancient world, ancient Greece, ancient Rome. Also, this is true of the ancient Chinese system, where um, the purpose of education for the Greeks and Romans was to make noblemen greater, right? So that you could participate in society, you could climb the ladder, you could become uh, wealthy and influential, you could, you could basically become more powerful. And so the goal of education, generally speaking, not exclusively, but generally was the, you know, personal excellence, particularly in Rome, that was the excellence of uh, speaking and arguing and being a member of that ruling elite, so in, in ancient Greece, it was to be a member of the demos, in Athens at least, to be a member of the demos so you could participate in your society. But the emphasis was always on personal excellence. How can you be the most noble version of you? Modern education system tends to lean much more heavily towards how can you have a career that allows you to function in society? This is a totally different question. I mentioned in the, in the lecture on leisure that uh, a liberal education comes from the notion of free, right? It's the kind of education you pursue if you're a free person, if you're not worried about making a living, if you aren't trying, in theory at least, to advance your status in society because you already have a status. And so when you pursue an education that's not designed to have you do some function other than personal excellence, the outcome is very different. And so that's why when you look at something like the Renaissance, uh, you know, even in the Northern Renaissance, the Flemish school, you know, Italian school, a lot of this came out of schools that were actually, you know, they were workshops. And so you had an interest, you showed a facility, you were the son or the cousin or the neighbor of someone who had a workshop and who was producing art. You would go in there and their goal was to help you be, you know, sort of the most skilled artisan, not the greatest artist, by the way, the most skilled artisan. And what happened as the society changed around those artisans, all of a sudden there became this greater and greater place for personal expression. Nothing like we have today, by the way, that took centuries to develop. But that combination of saying what we want from you is the greatest possible skill in craftsmanship, from which there's a huge competition, and then the overlay of society said, hey, a little more individual liberty, a little more freedom, um, and a little more self-expression, <clears throat> that begins to generate this uh, sphere where excellence can take place. But these were not generally hugely free individuals. They had all kinds of restrictions placed on their movements. Often they were members of guilds, which influenced what kind of work they could do, where they could do it, how they could be compensated. I mean, the rules go on and on. For us, in the modern era, we would find this incredibly oppressive. Relative to the medieval and ancient world, however, this was a growing degree of personal liberty, personal freedom for a few people um, who were educated in a way that allowed them to have greater access to personal expression. So again, you know, what does it mean to be free what does it mean to be educated and how those are expressed makes a, a huge difference on the, again, the fluorescence of the arts and the intellect that's going to be applied to this. Um, and another one that is huge, and I think this is one that may throw us off more than any of the others, is institutions. In large societies like ours, and wealthy societies like ours, we've come to have these unbelievably large, complex, expensive, bureaucratic institutions. And we have now come to the place where we associate the production of artistic excellence or, or great works of art with uh, the health and flourishing of particular institutions. And they have just no association. I can, you know, the history here is so clear it's hard to imagine, but... 
Um, the example, the obvious example is, is, you know, the universities in the Americas. Um, I won't worry so much about the foreign countries at the moment, but the contemporary university, you can read lots of articles about all the trouble that universities are having. Funding, costs of administration, costs for students, you know, uh, part-time faculty, exploitation of graduate students. And <clears throat> so all of which is true, right? All these struggles and challenges are true. And then you'll see in these articles, if you if we're bothered to read them, they'll say things like, oh, you know, and this threatens the humanities and this threatens, you know, philosophy and this threatens, you know, research and this, and it's like, see, those things are not the same. Um, the university as we have it today has only been around maybe a hundred years. Let's just be generous and say 150 years. But almost throughout the entirety of human history, these sorts of institutions were either very small, very rare, uh, or non-existent. And so you can have incredible artistic flourishing with no or little or no functioning university because we know that because for the first you know, couple of millennia, there was no such thing. And all these great riches of human history is sitting there for us to peruse and experience and expand our lives with and improve our lives with. I didn't have a university. And so what's, you know... Not that I'm opposed to university, and I think universities should go away. I'm not anti-university, but those things are not tightly correlated. And this and this this is so poisonous, by the way, this thought. When when people have, have run into this notion that, oh, well, Shakespeare didn't write Shakespeare's plays. Okay. So like, you know, going too far afield into that, uh, when people try to spring this on me, um, which has happened occasionally, one of the things they almost invariably say is, well, you know. Shakespeare was not an educated man. You know, he didn't go to Oxford. He didn't go to Cambridge. He didn't do any of these things that we associate now with necessary for intellectual, artistic, uh, philosophical excellence. So he must have not done it because he didn't have access to the kind of education you would need to produce the, you know, that the, the perhaps the greatest treasure trove in, in English literature, the plays of Shakespeare's and the poems of Shakespeare. Um, what the mistake there is not that Shakespeare didn't go to college, because he certainly didn't. That's not a mistake. And the mistake is to assume that anybody did. And in fact, pretty much nobody did. There was no, I mean, even the people who were going to Oxford and Cambridge were not going to anything even remotely resembling what we think of as an educational institution today. The emphasis, of course, was hugely on three subjects, Greek, little bit. I mean, Greek was sort of, if you had Greek, that really put you in rarefied air. Latin, okay, Latin, 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 that's what you're going to learn. And religion, I mean, these were religious institutions in theory. In practice, eh, not so much, right? But in theory, these were hugely dedicated religious institutions. So if you're going to be there, you had to spend a lot of time doing theology. So, um, and the people who tended to attend um, were people who were serious about theology, so there was something there for them. People who were interested in languages, so this is sort of linguistics and, and um, philology, as it were rightly called for the time, and other thinkers in general, but also lots and lots of wealthy sons who were just sort of killing time. Um, and often many of these degrees were conferred for little or nothing, for, so basically in hopes that you would endow the school. Uh, and so the, you know, what it meant to be educated at the time generally would say, if you were wealthy, you would have a private tour, tutor um, at home, and you might attend a year or not at one of the colleges, maybe if you were sort of into that kind of thing. But it was almost entirely private, and the literature would be privately distributed because all of the authority, if you were a nobleman, came from being recognized at, at court. So your letter writing and your private poems, these sorts of things were hugely important because that was your world. That was the audience you were seeking. Someone like Shakespeare was not writing primarily for that audience, although, of course, he did court performances, etc. But, you know, his world was not the court. It was much more emphasized on greater emphasis on the public. Of course, that was that balance shifts during his lifetime. But the, the public becomes increasingly important because of, you know, the social trends and the growing wealth of England and all the sort of socioeconomic dynamics of history. But his education 
for his time, he was immensely educated. I mean, he went to one of the first, apparently, you know, grammar schools where he would learn the rudiments of Latin. He would be introduced to some of the classics. And you see all of these elements in his work. But we think, oh, that can't have been enough. He must have had more teaching than that. But it turns out that, no, you, you hadn't. And if you look away from Shakespeare and look to so many other uh, great figures in history, and you realize all of a sudden that, oh my gosh, what they had access to compared to the modern world was so narrow. You look at someone like Mozart, who traveled all over the world, and well, all over the world, all over his world, um, all over, you know, performing and meeting. And so he was able to hear a huge variety of music relative to his time. But when he apparently later in life first heard Bach, he was amazed. He did not have access to Bach, who was just, you know, not that much earlier than him, but Bach's music had not really traveled outside of the of, of the German world. And so, you know, he didn't hear it until his musical ideas were pretty well established. And so he was amazed and thought it was wonderful to hear this, but Ah, so it's, you know, he didn't have access to that for his education. What he actually had access to was incredibly narrow. Um, and, and, and so he developed through practice, through rehearsal, through self-cultivation, not through um, a systematic education brought on by access to these great texts and all these great masters like uh, Bach. And just he just didn't have access to it, or a lot of it. He had access to some, and relative to his time, he had access to a lot more than most people. But compared to any first-year student going into a music college today and starting, where you have access to all the music in the world throughout all of history, and you have all kinds of theory, and you have, you know, you just have these unbelievable and unimaginable riches that you can listen to, and you can see the sheet music, and you can hear it, and you can understand it. But that doesn't create a Mozart, right? That's not where a Mozart comes from. And so we tend to look at these large institutions and go, oh, this is where greatness is going to come from. Success in an institution is the, the sort of grounds for going elsewhere. But again, nothing could be further from the truth. In fact, often institutions uh, will destroy the, the opportunities because you know, the, of institutional dynamics. Um, you know, another classic example from the modern era is, you know, <clears throat> Einstein is working away as a patent clerk and everybody, you know, says, oh, you know, shouldn't he have been at a university and what a waste of a genius and so on. But imagine if he's at a university and he has a teaching load and he's got graduate students and he has to publish or perish and, you know, he can't find parking and, you know, all these things. Is this going to help his research or is this going to hinder his research? Is this going to help make Einstein more like Einstein? And further his genius, or is this going to inhibit his work? Is this going to damage his productivity? You know, that's, that's an open question. Some people thrive in this environment, produce brilliant work. Lots of people don't, but the history is clear. It's not necessary. Potentially helpful for some people in some instances, but it's just not necessary. And it's only helpful when it is associated with these other kinds of uh, environments that I talk about, less letter writing and conversations and coffee houses and leisure and all of these sorts of things are much, much, much more important than any sort of academic institution. Um, this does not mean, of course, that artists and writers and thinkers haven't needed some sort of support, right? This is, you know, back to the notion of some material wealth is necessary, but what that's meant has varied, you know, greatly throughout history. So in, in ancient China, again, many of the writers and poets either studied for and passed the Confucianist exams or studied for them and did not pass and then sort of operated as quasi-official secretaries. But this gave them some free money uh, and, and a certain kind of education that allowed them to sort of flourish in the arts. And they had an audience because you had all the other people who had been studying for the Confucius exams who sort of were educated to be an audience for the kind of work that they produced. So that dynamic was there, and they're making a sort of marginal existence as sort of secretaries, and then they could get further recognition if they produced some poetry or calligraphy 
uh, of of merit. And, uh, and, you know, many people are probably familiar with the Renaissance where you had patrons. So you had the various dukes and counts and popes and, uh, you know, all, all in competition to try and outdo one another in social status. And so they are hiring great artists and sculptures and painters and musicians in this sort of uh, status race. Like, how can I be more civilized and more impressive than my neighbor? And that generated lots of uh, opportunity for particularly gifted individuals, writers and painters and poets and ambassadors and everything else, to pursue their trades. But these were not large institutions. These tended to be almost all personal relationships, you know, one-to-one, somebody knows somebody, or, you know, I heard that the other count, or I heard that the bishop over there has got somebody right, right? These very direct small-scale interpersonal relationships. These weren't huge, elaborate institutions, except for maybe something like the papal court, which would be the, you know, along with the king of France. And, you know, these would be the two biggest sort of institutions, maybe on the continent at the time, I think it's probably fair to say. But if not, there weren't a lot of other ones that big. And so, you know, they had pretty good sizable institutions, but even then a lot of this was personal. Um, It wasn't really done from, um, you know, wasn't a a massive bureaucracy set in motion. What's hilarious, though, is to read about those artists, you know, Michelangelo famously, complaining about the bureaucracy and complaining about all the problems. And I always think, wow, if he was alive today, imagine he saw today's bureaucracy, right? It would be just incredible. And so, uh, you know, we, we completely misunderstand when we encounter these sorts of, of environments and we think, oh, the institution is going to set you free or the institution is going to really help and make it, uh, make it happen. It may help and it may not, but historically speaking, it's certainly not necessary. And uh, Walter Kaufman, by the way, gives a great example of this in one of his books. It slips my mind at the moment. But he said, imagine, just imagine that uh, Plato is applying for a research grant for his book right, or his, his dialogues. And he says, I want to study the nature of the world, reason, logic, love, enlightenment, truth, you know, all epistemology, all ontology, um, and I'm going to try to write a series of works that are more or less conversational, uh, that will explore the rule of law and human evolution within the context of our uh, historical cultural development um, I'm not sure if I'll finish or when, and considering that my master, who was the wisest man of all time, felt it was wrong to write anything down, I'm slightly dubious on the survival or reception of my work, right? I mean, no one, right? He's just, Kaufman was just sort of imagining what, what Plato's, you know, application for a research grant would look like, and of course, no one is going to approve this research grant, and you can go through and just uh, imagine what any of these would have sounded like. What would, what would, you know, what would a Jackson Pollock's, uh, you know, graduate thesis on uh, imp- expressionistic art have sounded like? Right? It's like that. Leave me alone and let me paint. Right? That's that's what I want to do. And so we we all boy we fall for the institution trick every time. We think, man, if we just had a really really big institution behind me or some sort of support or something, then good things would follow. And again, not opposed to the institutions. Sometimes you need institutions. Symphony orchestras, one of my favorite examples. Those are big institutions. They're necessary. In other places, ooh, very dubious. And so when you think about what makes the humanities possible, I think you want to just reverse that. I think that's why I want to talk about the institution, because roughly speaking, the institution is the opposite of the humanities. When you think of the humane arts, as I call it, the, those are the arts that cultivate the individual. And if it's the individual expression of a human that we recognize and that resonates with us, then it's not the greatness of the institution that produces something. It's the greatness of the people, of the individual. And so the question to ask is, how do we help cultivate ourselves and how do we help cultivate a culture in which individuals can flourish? And again, back to the gardening metaphor. I love gardening metaphors because I love to garden. When you start, um, 
when you when people first start gardening, it's completely understandable. They tend to want to go to the garden store, uh, the nursery, and they want to buy something that has a flower on it because they can see the product and they go, that's what I want, which is perfectly reasonable. The flowers are beautiful. So I want a beautiful flower. I want uh, a beautiful tomato. So I'll buy a plant that has a tomato on it and they stick it in the ground and they're like, boom, off and running. This is great, but it misunderstands how you produce a beautiful garden. A beautiful garden grows from a particular kind of soil, right? If you have healthy soil and if you have the sort of appropriate plants in the appropriate environment, if it's a little shadier, a little wetter, or a little drier, a little sunnier, then those plants will flourish and then you'll get the sort of beauty that you imagine. And so it's, it's almost an inevitable evolution where at first everybody wants to look at the flowers and eventually everybody ends up just talking about soil, right? Because if you have the appropriate soil for the appropriate plant, you cannot go wrong. I mean, the plants will just go woo and they'll explode and they'll be beautiful and lovely. Um, and so that's what you want to look at is you want to say, okay, what is the soil that we can put individuals in that will allow them to flourish as individual as individuals. This is where institutionalism and, and institutional ideas go wrong. Institutions tend to want to average and agglomerate and and bring together and sort of just because it's necessary. Why does why does everybody need to be at school at the same time? Well it's not good for the individual necessarily. Some people like to get up later. Some people like to get up earlier. Some people are night people. Some people are morning people. Some people like to work in the afternoon. But it's just, you can't get, it's just logistically impossible to have an institution where everybody shows up wherever they want. So, although, by the way, there are examples of this being done historically. But um, so what you do is you just say, well, everybody has to be here at this time. It's not about the individual. It's about the necessary functioning of the institution. And what happens is institutions get larger and more cumbersome. These decisions just become increasingly oppressive because they need greater and greater uniformity of behavior on the part of the participants so that they can make the institution function smoothly. And, and that becomes the goal, the smooth function of institution, not the production of um, the greatest possible expressive individual. Um, so the humanities, though, the humane arts come from this, from the cultivation and expression of individual greatness. Now, that can come in any number of varieties, and there's not one way, which is part of the problem. There's not one kind of individual, therefore there's not one soil, right? If you put a tomato plant in the shade with really wet soil, it's not going to like it. If you take, uh, say, a shade-loving clematis and you put it in the full sun and it's really dry, it's not going to like it, right? Those are the, the, the soil might be okay, but it's the wrong plant. So different individuals, if they're going to thrive as individuals, need to be in these sort of greater variety of environments. And this is what, when you're trying to think about what produces greatness, that sort of thing. It's not a monoculture of an institutional environment. It's these sorts of societies that have created all of this variety. And so when you think about something like a coffee shop, a coffee shop allows all kinds of different people to come and they have a semi-public, semi-private space to gather where they can communicate and talk, but they can come at different times. They hit their own schedule. And so it's a, a sort of very wide, broad, mixed, unofficial, informal, yet generative, the history of this is really clear, uh, environment. And so this is where you want to start thinking. And we tend not to think about the individual because we're in such large societies. Uh, again, going back to the Greeks, Aristotle argued, I forget, I think it was 10,000 was like the largest possible, it might be 30,000. I think it was 10,000, but check me on this one. Anyway, it's a small number of thousands of people was the largest possible good society. Because once it got any bigger than that, you just lost all individual capacity to participate and interact and all these things would go by the wayside. And so, you know, that notion, there is an element of truth there. When you get too many people together, sort of necessary individuality tends to get smashed down. But if you want the artistic, aesthetic, intellectual, musical output of individuals, you have to have a way to cultivate that. So, you know, don't, don't be fooled by, by the institutional requirements. Uh, another way to think about this, or another way, is um, 
if you look at sort of like, I don't know, the history of rock and roll, if you, if you really like rock music, okay, that's certainly an interesting dynamic uh, explosion that people weren't really ready for. I mean, where did this come from? It did not come from, um, you know, music schools, obviously. It didn't come from sort of any kind of institution. It was the sort of growth medium. They did had no idea. No one in participating knew this was going to happen. But a bunch of individuals uh, in cities all over the primarily English-speaking, but not just English-speaking world, sort of were exposed to the rhythm and blues tradition of, of the U.S. And, and the U.S. African-American community, and it blew their minds, and they said, you know what? That's the kind of music I love. That's what I want to play. And it slowly was this groundswell. It came up from the bottom. It was a bunch of individuals being inspired by some music they just happened to be able to hear because of the uh, evolution of recording technology. And wow, off you go. You get this entire dynamic um, production of musical creativity with essentially zero institutional support. None, none whatsoever. And, and so, you, wow, think about that, right? What, and, and these weren't necessarily highly educated people. In fact, not, why would they be? What, what need was there for them to be educated? What they needed was a love of music, a desire for personal expression, and the opportunity to do so. So again, in this case, you know, it wasn't institutions, it was the op increasingly openness of bars and clubs to pay people and to bring people in and a sort of culture that evolved around that. It was the evolution of that sort of bars, clubs, and then larger venues, performance venues, sort of, you know, growing together, creating this ecosystem and the, 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 the ability to sell singles and then the ability to sell records that create a revenue stream to undergird all this. And then you had AM radio and then eventually FM radio that allowed all of it to be broadcast broadly. And then boom, there you go. All of these feedback loops sort of took place. And then this great artistic fluorescence comes up. Um, and, you know, but, but again, was this institutionally supported? No. Was it peaceful. I mean, whew, yes and no. Um, you know, England was going through a pretty serious economic depression. Uh, the U.S. was involved with the Korean War and then the Vietnam War, which of course informed the music. You had all the civil rights, um, you know, uh, strife going on culturally. So it was culturally a great period of ferment and unrest. You know, so that sort of, uh, again, those sorts of elements that we tend to associate or imagine must occur are not necessarily uh, going to be present. And so turning toward what is necessary, it's all these weird things that, see, well, they seem weird to us because we tend to think from, again, this different vantage point historically. But if you want to have an individual who is great enough to produce great uh, matter, great something. Well, the history says, well, what you want are great individuals. You put your efforts and energies into cultivating um, excellence, personal excellence. I tell my, my students when we study the Renaissance, I say, you know, every society has a goal for what they think a person should be. Our society says material wealth, money, right? That's what's great. You know, you get up in the morning, if you make some money, that's, that's, that's great. Um, I think in the Renaissance, what they wanted you to do is to be fabulous. The goal of the Renaissance was to produce fabulous people who did fabulous things in fabulous ways. And it was just this notion of you got up in the morning and you said to yourself, how can I be fabulous today? Right? That was really a powerful impulse. And so if you read Castiglione's The Courtier, um, if you look at the art, if you look at the clothes, you look at the style, you look at the poetry, there was this just amazing emphasis on... Uh, personal, just, I don't know, fabulousness. That's the word I like it, just to be fabulous, right? Do something big, do something amazing, be impressive, be beautiful, be wonderful, be entertaining, make your friends happy. It's going to be great. And that sort of impulse, that sort of impetus is much better at producing um, the sort of the, the history of the arts as we understand them than, you know, sort of, again, the institutional thing that doesn't emphasize the individual, so then the question becomes, well, how do you cultivate the individual? What is it that you bring into yourself? How do you process it? And then how does that come out? And this notion is 
you know, we just don't, it's so hard. I mean, I'm struggling for words here because our educational system says, here's some things to learn. You memorize them, you reproduce them, and then we check a box, and then we move you on to the next level. And we think, okay, well, that's sort of educational. Well, that's sort of measurable education of a sort. A totally different thing, and you can see this as they say, okay, hey, read these 20 books, and you're going to take a test at the end of a survey course in a literature class. Okay, I'm familiar with these sorts of things. Well, this, this is sort of not a very good model, I would argue. A better model is to say, read some work, incorporate it in yourself, really understand it, make it your own, and then ponder that and be able to share it with somebody else. Right? That way the work becomes a mix of the work and you. You're, you're incorporating it into yourself, into your life, into your outlook, into the vision that you see um, out there. And that kind of uh, experience is very different because you can't do 20 books rapidly that way. It's impossible. But you can do one or two or three or four books that way and really start having them resonate and grow within you. And, and here's an experiment I tried in this, and I, I recommend this for everybody. It doesn't have to be my exact example, but anyone. As I thought, okay, I was listening to some Beethoven on the radio, and I thought, which symphony is this? Because I just turned the car on, and it was playing, and I thought, is that the... And, I, and then I thought, that is strange. I've been listening to Beethoven's symphonies for my whole life, more or less, you know, because you hear it in, this in commercials and backgrounds and movies, you know, it's all over the place, much less just actually putting the music on specifically and listening to it. And I thought, wow, that's interesting. In theory, I've listened to a lot of Beethoven in practice. How much have I really, really heard? And this goes back, this is probably maybe a decade ago when I ran this experiment. So I thought, okay, there's a, there's a famous book by Berlioz where he goes through and talks about each of the Beethoven symphonies. And so I thought, I'm... First, I'm not going to listen to any other music. I'm going to stop listening to anything but Beethoven. Second, I'm going to listen to Beethoven's symphony and do nothing else, just quietly in the dark, put on a symphony and listen. And then one symphony a week. So first week, I just listened to the first symphony. I'd listen to it a couple of times. And then after I'd listened to it, I think two or three times, then I would read, I would take notes and then I would read uh, Berlioz's notes on that symphony and sort of compare what I was thinking, what was Berlioz thinking, and then I would listen to it some more. And so I did, you know, obviously it takes about two months, nine symphonies, um, and I, you know, worked my way through this. And what started to happen was this very remarkable thing. Oh, and I wrote letters to my friend, uh, a friend of mine who's a brilliant musical mind and telling him, you know, what I was hearing, what was I experiencing when I listened to the music. And I was curious on his thoughts on this. So there's three parts to it, listening, reading Berlioz and writing about it and then getting the feedback from my friend. And about the halfway through the second or beginning of the third week, this amazing thing started to happen where like I would just be walking along and all of a sudden Beethoven's music would just come to mind. Whole sections of it, just expanses would open up and I'd go, oh, that, you know, 20 bar section perfectly captures how I'm feeling right now. Or I would take a note about something and then read Berlioz and go, oh my gosh, he expressed so much more clearly something that I was sort of having this vague feeling about. Um, and the music really came alive to me in a way that it hadn't before. I mean, and it made my own problem, but it's just because I'd it'd been there, but I hadn't really focused on it. And so when I narrowed my focus and really tried to incorporate Beethoven into me, it just came to life in an amazing way, like really just, wow, just almost overwhelming how powerful, how rich, how complete, how wonderful, how applicable it seemed to be. Um, and, and what this taught me and how it sort of inspired this entire series was we're inundated with material, we're inundated with ideas, we're inundated with opportunities and material wealth, everything, right? We have all of the artistic, musical, architectural heritage ever available at our fingertips in a way the world has never had before. But that is not what makes greatness. Only those things that you can incorporate into yourself to make part of you and then somehow share 
that is where the great intellectual cultural heritage comes from, is the individual bringing it into themselves and then sharing it back out, bringing it in themselves and sharing it back out. And you can only do that with a really limited amount of material. There's only so much you can completely sort of chew on and incorporate into your own mind, into your own life, into your own emotions, into your own experiences, and reproduce, not as a copy, of course, but as an expression of appreciation or of inspiration. You can hear music that might inspire you to paint or, or, or that frees your mind to create like Beethoven, or not Beethoven, uh, Einstein would, would play his violin and that would free his mind to think about physics, right? So what the connection is there, I don't know, but it would seem to be necessary for him. And I've run this experiment with other kinds of, I've done that with writers where I've read, you know, an early, middle, or late novel or something like this where I just where you can see the evolution of their work and their thinking. And I've done it with other music and said sometimes it's revealing that some music doesn't just doesn't develop. The first work or the fourth work could have been interchangeable. With Beethoven, of course, the strides that he takes are so miraculous that by the time you get to the ninth, it's almost, you know, it's just almost inhuman. He expands what it means to be human with the ninth symphony. Um, and so that sort of experience is different, very much different than, oh, here's a survey of Western musical history, listen to 150 albums in the course of 25 weeks, and then write an essay on it, and you're good to go. <clears throat> this is not going to work. And again, if you think back to the rock music explosion, what was happening? People in England, people in the United States, um, we're getting a handful of albums from obscure blues artists at the time obscure. Now they're you know, more famous because of the rock music tradition. And they were listening to those albums a hundred times, 200 times, 300 times. They were wearing, literally wearing out the albums. They were listening to them so much. They weren't, they didn't have broad, expansive musical educations. They took a little bit of something, a little bit of a powerful musical tradition and incorporated it into themselves to the point where they could produce it again. That's the extraordinary, uh, you know, prerequisite for these kinds of artistic, aesthetic, intellectual, scientific breakthroughs. And we misjudge it mightily when we look towards these other things like wealth or institution or personal freedom or peace, because that's not where it comes from. It has to come from individuals or small groups of individuals, by the way. I say individuals, but it can be, a, you know, a small, you know, there's all these communities, Bloomsbury Group, Vienna Circle, et cetera, that, that have, have sprung up. But those are groups of individuals. And so when we look at each of the categories of the humane arts, walking, letter writing, conversation, salons and cafes, leisure, these elements that seem so strange, so ancillary, so unnecessary, so, you know, just like, oh, that's for fops or, or that just is silly, this isn't what people who are really working do, they turn out to be what's really important because that's where the individual is able to cultivate themselves and flourish. And without those, it seems pretty clear that the individual struggles, and so you don't get nearly as much. So this is what I would like you to think about as you listen through the series. Ponder how each of these institutions um, reflect back on how the individual can cultivate themselves and how when a large enough body of people are allowed to cultivate themselves in these strange ways, there seems almost inevitably to be this upwelling of expression. And those environments seem to be rare and fleeting, but they are there, and you see them all through the world, where you get these amazing cultural fluorescences. And what undergirds them almost, well, not almost, but with consistency, if you look, it is these weird things. It's not universities, it's letter writing. It's not big government grants. It's coffee shops and cafes and salons. It's not some systematic method of, of, of education of a wealthy population. It's the uh, sporadic cultivation of individual excellence with a, a medium or an opportunity for self-expression. 
And so, again, to bring it back to the Shakespeare example, so people just really are frustrated with, with the example of Shakespeare because he runs counter to so many of our assumptions about what uh, artistic and intellectual and, and you know, literary expression of the absolute highest merit requires. Um, and, but what it requires is those things that Shakespeare actually had access to. So many of those elements were what he was able to participate in, a cultivated society that could share ideas and have conversations in, in semi-public ways. And a modicum of education underground, uh, undergird that and a means for expression and a possibility of an audience. It's all these other elements, all these other sort of social and cultural forms. So, so two things then. One, reflect on that. You know, really try and think about in our own lives, now that we have a little extra time, you know, what are those elements that really allow me to cultivate myself and to incorporate parts of the world into me? Uh, and then two, what are those elements that interfere with that, that, that take me away from myself so much that I can't actually in any way address or deal with or incorporate it and, and make it myself because it's too much or it's too busy or it's too jarring or what, whatever. There's not a, whatever the thresholds are that aren't being met. Um, and if you can slightly increase those things that will aid in self-cultivation and, you know, decrease those things that detract from it, what you're doing is recreating this kind of environment in your own personal life that is allowed for the greatness of cultural fluorescences throughout history from which we are the immense beneficiaries of that enrich our lives to a degree that's almost unimaginable. So, introduction to the Humane Art series that was accidentally deleted, well not deleted, was never quite recorded properly in the first place. So I hope you enjoy that. Maybe revisit the series and be well. Thank you. <laughs>